facing this church. So assuming you know this church, what it's like, etc. What are the main issues of behaviour and attitude facing this church? What are the problems we need to sort out? Discuss the question in twos or threes, and I'll ask you for your ideas in a few minutes' time. No, I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> but I think I know what you would not have said. I don't think you'd have said fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire or greed. Maybe greed might have got a look in, I don't know. Nor do I think you'd have said anger, wrath, malice, slander or abusive language. Those are the first two lists in the passage. Now, you're bound to be able to find all those things in the Christian church of today in this country and maybe some of them even in this one. But I doubt whether that's where we would start. And it's not as if we'd want to say that some of them are okay. I'm sure we'd agree that they're all bad. But I guess Paul had a reasonable idea what he was talking about to the people he was saying it to. He doesn't seem to have visited the church in Colossae, so he doesn't know them personally, not many of them. But he does know people who do know them, and he knows far better than we do the sorts of issues that troubled churches in general. So he gives us two lists. The first one is all about sex. Even the word translated as Greek is probably to be read that way. And what is really important to grasp is that the gap between Christian and pagan sexual morality was far greater in the first century AD than it is between Christians and non-Christians in Britain now. Yes, I mean that. I'm being serious. Um, there are exceptions. Christians with a Jewish background would have found no great change in attitude or behaviour expected, not a big change expected, when they became Christians. But for Christians from a pagan background, it was a massive change. At least for men. For freeborn pagan women, the rule was simple. No sex outside marriage. Uh, but slave women, and they were included in the Christian church, of course, they were the property of their masters, so they existed for their master's use. That was true for all slaves, children included. But for freeborn pagan men, anything went. Well, just two exceptions. No sex with women who are married to somebody else. It happened, of course, but it was illegal. And no sex with freeborn children. So, Christian sexual morality posed two major challenges to people who came from the pagan world into the Christian church. One was how to persuade freeborn ex-pagan men to give up what everyone else regarded as their right and have the same rule for men as for women. Yes, that was the 
really rather novel teaching of the Christian church. What, one law for men and for women. And the other one was how to advise Christian slaves to handle the sexual demands of their masters. Now, the New Testament doesn't help us as much as we might have liked to answer the second question. Uh, there are instructions for slaves later on in this chapter, next week's bit, I think, and they don't seem to cover that. But, on the first point, men being required to change their attitudes and behaviour, there's plenty that allows us a glimpse of the difficulty of getting ex-pagan men to change their ways. Like verse 5. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed. As verse 7 says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Yep, that's not a uh, a nice way of saying it, that is just plain straight how it was. Uh, that's the life they used to live. Did Paul's preaching on this subject work? Uh, hard to be sure, but Christians did acquire a reputation among pagans for living by a strict sexual code. Now, throwing a list of vices to avoid at your audience would not be cool PR in the church today. But for ancient people, it would have seemed normal, natural, both from their education and from the nearest thing they had to mass media. So maybe Paul knew what he was doing. Now list number two, which is in verse eight. A different kind of list. Still things to avoid, though. I wonder what's behind this list. You must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Now, I don't quite know what's behind this. I'm going to make up them. I'm making up the next bit. But when I read things in the Bible, I always try to think, hang on, what's going on here? Why does it make sense for somebody to say what's being said here to these people there then? Well, two things occur to me. One of them is obvious. Paul's trying to build up a community that reflects the love of God. That is one body, the body of Christ. So, aggression is out. If you think of those vices on the list, they're sort of Aggression is as near as there is to a, a common factor running through them. But also my second point, and this is a bit, more, a bit more speculative. The church is made up to a large extent of the fairly poor. The just about managing section of society. Along with a few, just a few, who are not rich, but fairly comfortably off but also some who are so poor that they depend entirely, or almost entirely, on the surplus income of the other members of the church. It strikes me that poverty can bring with it all sorts of grievances, bitterness, provocation to extreme behaviour. In fact, often a massive need for anger management 
Maybe that's what lies behind Paul's second list. Once again, this would not be an effective way to speak to a church in Britain now, I think. But if the church in Britain had a much greater proportion of really poor people in it, then just possibly anger management would be higher on our agenda. So that's speculative on my part, but I I rather suspect so. Paul's list might speak across the time gap and culture gap into our problems in a way that for most of us, most of the time, I don't quite think it does. Mind you, if we were looking at the list of positive virtues in verse 12, uh, which we're not, that's next week, okay, uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, we might note that they're almost a mirror image of the vices in verse 8. We might also wonder whether maybe we could, most of us, do with a bit more of quite a few of them. But uh, the vice is harder to handle with the modern church, modern audience, isn't it? You'll notice that I've picked out two difficulties in applying Paul's teaching to us. In the first place, he's not talking to us with our issues, whatever they may be. He's talking to different people with different issues. So, if we take what what he says to other people and try applying it directly to ourselves, we will at least blunt the message, probably also change it in subtle ways that we don't realise. I don't want to play Chinese whispers with the Bible. It's important to work out what does need to be said to churches here and now, but parroting bits of Colossians chapter 3, I think is more likely to make us complacent than teach us much of value. Those vices? Nah, it's not us, is it? Nah, no problem. We're all right. So, I'll pass on from that. My second difficulty with trying to be practical about these passages, it's more about style than substance. We don't think in lists of vices or virtues for that matter. So they're not going to be a very effective way of communicating with anyone. We think much more in terms of particular events, actions, people. Uh, Somebody might, for example, talk about uh, something that... I find myself hearing about a bit uh, in connection with the food bank here, the injustices of the way the benefit system works in our society. Now, that could easily get too abstract. I was going to listen to a talk on it once. Very good talk. It was in through one ear and out through the other, in my case, I'm afraid. But, but, show the film, I, Daniel Blake, for instance. Um, That's uh, realistic people doing and suffering a lot of things that are wrong, with the system, as we have it. There's no missing the point in a film like that. I don't know whether any of you have seen it. Uh, If you haven't, I recommend it. However, that's not within Colossians chapter 3, but just by the way. Um, The trouble is, the film of Colossians isn't out yet. So, they haven't even dug up the city of Colossae yet. There's the archaeology department of an Australian university waiting to get their hands on it and their trowels into it. But the Turkish government uh, needs to play ball with this Australian university. 
So I understand. And films and stories can't do everything for you. I had to wander around the internet looking for ways to bridge the gulf between Colossians and us. And eventually, I found a book. I haven't got it, I haven't read it, I think just read little bits. Um, sorry, I'm going to read you a few bits as well. Uh, this is a bit embarrassing, actually, after everything I've said so far about uh, how not to communicate with a modern audience. Um, <clears throat> it's a serious academic book. I'm going to read you a bit of it. It's by a lady called Elizabeth Brusco, who's a professor of anthropology in a university in the northwestern United States. And the title, wait for it, is The Reformation of Machismo, Evangelical Conversion and Gender in Colombia. It was on your Christmas wish list, wasn't it? <laughs> See you on your list for next Christmas. Anyway, here goes. The machismo role, uh, machismo is a Spanish word, and it means the whole business of being macho, okay? Right? Um, I mean, you know what macho means. So, the machismo role and the male role defined by evangelicalism are almost diametrical opposites. Aggression, violence, pride, self-indulgence, and an individualistic orientation in the public sphere are replaced by peace-seeking, humility, self-restraint, and a collective orientation and identity within the church and the home. Doesn't this sound at least a bit like the world of Colossians chapter 3? A collision between the church and the outside world. And men, males that is, caught in the middle. It also sounds a bit like Paul. A list of vices followed by a list of virtues. Um, funny you can do that in an academic book, uh, but not, I think, in a sermon. Let me go on. Read a bit more. To evangelical Protestants, she says, conversion implies unseating the core values of male behaviour enshrined in machismo. Which is a long-winded way of saying that if you become a, an evangelical Christian, being macho goes out. Machismo is understood as virility, courage and bravado. It's expressed by typical macho behaviours of drinking, smoking, gambling and extramarital sexual liaisons. Macho behaviour entails supporting costly vices in the public world of men. Support of those vices occurs at the direct expense of the quality of life of families dependent on macho breadwinners. In other words, a macho lifestyle costs money, and it's money that doesn't go to the men's wives and children. What happens to the macho value system when the husband converts to evangelical Protestantism? He swears off the traditional masculine vices like drinking and partying most of the weekend and reintegrates himself into the household. He assumes the role of husband and father that he may have neglected since the early days of his marriage and participates actively in the church community. For many men, no longer having to maintain the facade of unrelieved masculinity and bravado is a great relief. The private world of household and loved ones is preferable to the public world of men. 
And then Elizabeth Roscoe adds, in Colombia, machismo is, over the long run, very demanding and difficult for all under its sway, including the males who must perform this role. Okay, end of academic speak. Back to plain English. But do you see the idea that we're not a million miles, I think, from the world that Paul is speaking into? It's different. Colombian society is not the same as the society of Greek-speaking um, ancient um, 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 southwest Turkey, Colossi. Uh, but there are similarities. And again, it's not that many million miles from the world of modern Britain, even though it is different. So, I included it because it helps me imagine my way onto the receiving end of some biblical teaching that otherwise might have passed me by as not entirely to the point of where I and my church are. My church? The church in Colombia isn't my church then? Were you here, was it last week, when Pat Blanchard was here? I'm afraid I missed her. But uh, talking about the church in Peru, did the church in Peru, if you heard her, feel like your church? I hope so. That's how I've... I've been with Pat, I've met Pat in Peru and been to uh, a church of hers there. And yeah, it, it's, it's different, very different. But it's, it's my church in a funny kind of way. And I've never been to Colombia. But to quote some words, I guess, I think Steve is due to say shortly, we are one body. One body of Christ and each individually members of it which leads us into Paul's third list, verse 11. Here there's neither Gentile nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This list, this list isn't a collection of do's and don'ts. It's more a collection of there isn'ts. It takes a list of distinctions between groups of people and says that in Christ they don't count. It's an idea that comes up several times in Paul but takes a slightly different form each time. In 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, he says they were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Perhaps his most famous statement is in Galatians chapter 3. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. This time, in Colossians, he leaves out the male and female bit, but adds some others. Circumcised and uncircumcised may not add a lot to Jew and Gentile. That's what terms mean, more or less. But it had been controversial in many of the earliest churches whether Gentile believers should have to be circumcised. The answer was no. And actually, you can see from chapter 2 of Colossians that it had been a bit of an issue in Colossae as well. Paul also adds barbarian and Scythian. This seems unnecessary, as they're both included in Gentiles. But, actually, I'm afraid the Greek word that is translated as Gentiles isn't Gentiles at all. It's Greeks. Okay? Um, 
So, and by Greeks meaning, more or less, give or take a bit, non-Jews who spoke Greek. That makes a lot more sense, because barbarian means, more or less, someone who doesn't speak Greek. Originally, the term meant people who spoke a language that made about as much sense to your average Greek as bar, 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 bar. So the Greeks invented a word for them, barbaroi. That's where our word barbarians comes from. It's a dismissive, contemptuous, racist word. But it wouldn't have occurred to anybody in the ancient world that there was anything the matter with it. We'll come back to that in a minute. Even so, the word Scythian, that goes a stage further. Some barbarians were a bit worse than others. They were people whose lands went from north of the Black Sea, Ukraine, southern Russia, and east, (coughs) right across Kazakhstan towards China. Uh, If you want to know about the real Scythians, uh, I gather there's an exhibition at the British Museum this autumn. But... So I found out as I was preparing what to say. Um, I don't know, maybe I'll go. I don't know anything much about the Scythians, other than the bit that I'm going to read out to you. Uh, Paul and his readers may not know much about real Scythians. Uh, the chances are we're dealing with more of a stereotype. Heavy drinkers, pot smokers, really vicious fighters who drink the blood of their dead enemies. Not just any old barbarians but the wildest of the wild and the backwardest of the backward. However extreme the racism that the word may imply, and my goodness, we would want to say this is real racist language. Paul undermines it completely because in Christ, Scythians are just the same as the rest of us. And the rest of us are just the same as Scythians. Maybe Christian Scythians were a figment of Paul's imagination. Or maybe he knew actual Scythian slaves in some of his churches. We can't tell. Eventually, of course, I'm sure there were Christian Scythians around the place somewhere. But I fear that this may be a more timely message for the church now than it might have been a few years ago. Nationalism is on the increase. Now, I know that can mean different things. But in Christ, this is the fundamental principle I think that Paul is trying to get across here. There is no preferential treatment for one nationality over another. To the pagan world of Paul's day, this anti-nationalism or perhaps internationalism would have been puzzling and the anti-racist element all that about barbarians and Scythians being like us would have been really rather offensive of course they're inferior to the rest of us to folk like us decent civilized Greeks and Jews and so on it would have been really quite shocking but Paul isn't having got that don't imagine that Paul is saying that we must obliterate all the differences between cultures, languages, etc. I'll tell you why. 
It was the other side of that coin. Paul is not going to. The New Testament doesn't obliterate all those differences, all those cultural differences in one great, one-size-fits-all, McDonaldized church. No, God seems to value the differences. And here's a rather strange uh, perspective on a passage that you will know very well, I'm sure. Think back to the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were heard in the many different languages of the crowd. As an exercise in communicating a message, that was a completely pointless miracle. Everybody would have understood either Greek or Aramaic. And many would have understood both. They were all Jews from, uh, yes, all over the place, but they'd all understood either Greek or Aramaic. And I'm sure the disciples could have managed enough Greek for the purpose, as well as their native Aramaic. But it looks as if God wanted the gospel expressed in every language and every culture. Unnecessary as a means of of communicating a message, but there's a different message to be communicated, perhaps. God values these languages, these cultures, and he wants the gospel in those languages, in those cultures. Or to change Bible books for a moment. Remember the crowd, when John hears the crowd singing in Revelation, chapter 5. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. He's addressing the lamb, I figure representing Jesus. Um, for you, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That phrase, every tribe and language and people and nation, occurs with minor variations seven times in the book of Revelation. And if you know your book of Revelation, you know the number seven usually carries some special meaning. So maybe we're dealing with something important. But it's differences of language and tribe in people worshipping God together, not dividing them. But the final bit in Paul's list, neither slave nor free, could have been positively dangerous. The societies of the Roman Empire were very, stati- were very status conscious. So we, we, like to kid ourselves, we're not. They were completely upfront about it. True, there were Stoic philosophers who argued that slaves were human beings on a level with the rest, though it seems to have made little difference to how their slaves lived or got treated. Were Christians any better? Did they practice what Paul preached? Well, like a lot in life, it wasn't that simple. Paul wrote another letter to a member of this, the same church in Colossae, a man called Philemon, asking him to be reconciled to a slave who'd run away, become a Christian, and joined Paul. And he may be asking, between the lines, for Philemon to set him free. Paul has to be very careful. He could easily be on the wrong side of the law. It was a very ticklish situation. We see Paul combining subtle diplomacy on the one hand with jokey bullying on the other hand, and at the same time, modelling profound theology 
in himself. We don't know the outcome. Real life is messy, and Christians don't always live by biblical principles, then or now. There's a famous story that I can't resist telling you. About a century and a half later, two young Christian women stood holding hands in the arena in Carthage, a Roman city in North Africa, Perpetua, an upper-class woman, and the slave Felicitas, sharing a common death for their common faith. In Christ, neither slave nor free. So I said at the start that chapter 3 was practical, do's and don'ts. Some people want to be told what to do in life. Don't ask questions. Some of us do ask why. And the Bible does actually, quite often, give answers. Why Jews, Gentiles, barbarians and Scythians? I mentioned about the different languages at Pentecost and the visions of people of every language, tribe and nation in Revelation. I take it that God is the creator of a rich and varied universe. Because he likes it that way. That's God. What about the rest? It's all about relationships between people. Exploiting them or not exploiting them. Not being aggressive to them. Not, getting others, not treating other people as inferior to folk like us. I'm going to be very simple about something that's very profound. This all has to do with the character of God. A relationship exists within, among, between the persons of the Trinity. I imagine, without really understanding what I'm talking about, that God wants that relationship reflected in how his human creatures treat each other. Love, therefore reconciliation. Love, therefore peacemaking. In Christ, neither slave nor free. God knows about slavery. He's been there. Listen to this. Wrong letter, sorry, but it makes the point. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that really is slave language, humbling obedience, death on a cross. And we know that there was a sequel to death on the cross. That sequel is shared, <coughs> is shared by Philegitas and Perpetua, slave and aristocrat, and by persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's got to be a good club. <laughs> 